Uh, welcome to our neighbors. Glad you're joining, uh, joining us this morning, and also good morning to you, church. Uh, thank you for the hearty greeting. Um, glad to be with you this morning. Uh, just as a, a quick reminder, there is warm coffee. Even if you don't drink coffee, it is warm. It is available over there. I will understand if you need to go and fetch some uh, in our time here together. Um, we are uh, in a series that we've called How Long? You probably... Um, I've noticed that theme through our, our gathering together this morning uh, with our readings and with the songs that we're singing. Um, and the thing that I find fascinating is when we stay distant from God, when we stay distant from the Bible, our perspective of it can be that it just kind of glosses over everything that's wrong in the world and it glosses over um, the pain that's in my life and just kind of has simple fixes for everything. But my encouragement to you is as we, as we draw closer to God and as we, as we dig into the scriptures, we find that they actually face the darkness of the world head on. Um, and there's a, a, a question that I think is, is universal to humanity. Um, whether you are close to God or far from God or don't even know if God exists, the question is, um, if, if God actually is who he says he is, uh, if he is in control, why does it seem like everything's so chaotic? If God is in control and he cares about us, um, why is the world on fire? And as we have asked that question, we began to explore um, a couple of answers, not answers, but trying to get a different perspective on the question. And we've been doing that through uh, some visions that are given to a man named Daniel. So if you would like to join me in the text, I think it'll be helpful for you to follow along with me as we're reading this morning. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, and if you want to use the blue Bibles that are here in the room, um, we're going to be on page 936. 936, Daniel chapter 8. As... Um, as we began this series last week, uh, I feel like I'm learning as we go. And so we're going to approach the text a little bit uh, in a little bit of a different pattern than we did last week. I think it'll probably help us to track along with it. Um, but I see that you guys are turning there. And uh, we need no less help this week than we did last week to understand and grapple with what God is revealing here. So I just invite you, if you would pray together with me, um, I'm going to open us up, uh, I'm going to open in a prayer. And then I'm going to shift to the disciples' prayer. And I just invite you to pray with me. Uh, you can pray out loud if you'd like to, but at the very least, would you bow your hearts and let's pray together as we begin. Lord Jesus, when we consider you and consider the work that you've done in the world, um, we can be overwhelmed by just how beautiful the story is and how intricate it is. And we can get caught up in the details that you would be born into the world, born into to, uh, a sinful world um, as a baby, and you would grow up to be a man that would take on the sin of the world. Um, we're grateful. And Lord, as we begin this morning, I ask that you would focus our attention, that you'd focus our hearts and help us not to lose track of um, the big points. God, would you give us clarity where we need clarity? God, would you give us faith? Um, maybe that's not the right word, but would you help us to live uh, in tension where you have chosen not to be clear? And God, would our time together here um, bring us closer to you? Father, we pray together. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Daniel chapter 8. Similar to Daniel chapter 7, if you were with us last week, uh, the pattern will be familiar to you. If not, and you'd like to catch up, um, the video recording of the sermon or the series, yeah, the worship celebration last week is on our YouTube page and it will be on the podcast at some point this week. We're running a little bit behind, but you can catch up. Um, the overview of the chapter is there's a dream in the first part, there's a dream, and then there's an interpretation, and then there's a conclusion. So the, the outline of the chapter is actually pretty simple. The content of the dream and the interpretation is where we start to get. Uh, uh, start to get um, some confusion. So uh, let's begin by reading in Daniel chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 just to get us started. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at... The Ulai Canal. So I'll pause there. So we're again entering the story of Daniel. Um, the the we've been going or we have gone through here recently in a series that was called Faith Under Fire. Um, the the biographical section of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is not actually written in chronological order. It seems to be written in two major sections. The first half of it is biological, not yeah, bi- biographical, not biological. I'm getting my bio words mixed up. Biographical. So it tells the story of Daniel's life. It tells the story of how he was raised in Israel with some godly parents, that the the nation was taken over by an invading army, and he was sent off to Babylon to be re-educated under foreign deities, how he remained faithful to Yahweh in a hostile culture, and we did all of that in the series Faith Under Fire. The second section is is, is a shift. So in the first section, the biographical section, it describes Daniel as somebody who interprets dreams. Uh, oftentimes, or as, as he comes across dreams in, his, uh, in that section, he's the one who interprets it. But here in this latter half, he becomes the dreamer. He's the one who sees the dreams himself. Um, and so we studied the first one last week. And this one, in these verses, it says this was the second vision that happened. And it happened in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar is a character that we met in chapter 5, and he died in chapter 5, but here we are, and we've had two sections, uh, or chapters 7 and 8, which happened before he died. You have to have a dream while he's living. Um, So chapters 7 and 8 actually happened before chapter 5, chronologically. But what the, author wanted us to commun- what, what the author wanted us to understand wasn't about the chronological nature. It was about the meaning of what was happening. So that's, that's where we're at. He's also, he also gives us some geographical notes. He says, I was in Susa. Susa was the capital city of Babylon. And he says, I was near the canal. All right? So give you a little bit of a setting where kind of you can hear the flowing water going through the canal. Um, in the middle of a bustling city that's devoted to the worship of pagan gods. Sounds great, right? We're ready for the vision now. Uh, And I'm going to break this up. I I think 
what I did last week wasn't particularly helpful, but I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'll tell you what I read, and I'll read a few verses, and I'll tell you what I read as we go through the dream, okay? So verses 3 and 4. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So the first section, the first part of the dream, once we realize where we are, he, he pictures a ram. And the ram has two horns. The horns are kind of uneven. All right, But the ram itself has a lot of power. It goes wherever it wants to, and it takes over, and nobody can stand in front of it. we got a powerful ram. Uh, anybody have any dreams lately about livestock? Okay, just, just checking. I was curious. All right, let's read, let's read the next part because we got more livestock coming in. In verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So, we've got another animal that shows up. We started with a ram that was powerful, and now a goat kind of struts into the scene, but he doesn't just strut into the scene, he flies in. He comes in from the west, and he doesn't even touch the ground as he comes in. We've got a flying goat coming across the field, and he tackles this ram, and he breaks the ram, he kills the ram, and this goat has one horn in its head, but then as it gets to the height of its power, that horn gets broken off, and then there are four horns that replace it. So we got a four-horned flying goat. Um, anybody have any dreams about flying goats this week? <clears throat> uh, let's read verses 9 through 12. Out of one of them, so this is out of one of the horns, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as the prince, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. I'm going to pause there, because we got even weirder than flying goats. <clears throat> so out of the four horns on the goat's head, there comes a smaller horn. And that horn seems to, to take over. It's, 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 uh, it becomes great. It, it, it is in charge of things. And it's described as becoming great as the prince of the host. Um, we, if you're familiar with, with the text, you've been in church for a while, you will, you will know the word host. You know it as like a Bible word. Um, so the Lord of hosts. Um, the, like host is the Bible word for armies. So when you see host in the text, it's actually talking about armies. We're talking about military combat is, is, is typically how that word is used. So it says he became as great as the prince of the armies. So somebody who has military power. 
and he even uh, and took some of the stars and threw them down to the ground and trampled on them. So he's reaching up and he's, he's taking stars out of the sky and destroying stars. Like this is one powerful little horn on this weird flying goat thing, right? What's it talking about? There's a shift here then um, where it talks about a regular burnt offering and a transgression. When we talk about regular burnt offering, this is an indication that we have shifted into talking about the world generally, yeah, shifted from talking about the world generally to talking about something particular of the nation of Israel. Regular burnt offering was something that God gave to the people of Israel. This is how you're supposed to worship me. And this little horn interrupts the regular burnt offering that's offered to the prince of the armies. That makes me think that the prince of the armies is, is God, is Yahweh. And this little horn interrupts the regular burnt offering that are offered to Yahweh. And it says um, that a, a host will be given over to this horn, an army will be given over to this horn uh, with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And will throw it to the and will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. So this is a lying little horn that interrupts the worship of the worship of Yahweh. Are we still tracking? I was told this morning that we were we were going to struggle, which I don't understand because we got an extra hour of sleep, um, but. Flying goats and, and interrupting worship church services. Like, I feel like that's, that's drama, right? Somebody came in here and tried to interrupt what we were doing here. Like, we'd be worked up about that, right? Well, because it happened to somebody else and it happened in a vision, we just kind of like, okay, whatever. I don't really get it. <clears throat> but if that were what's going on here, if, if somebody walked in, we'll say a short person, right? The short person walked in and was like, y'all can't do this anymore. Y'all need to get out of here. Like, we'd be kind of flustered. But when we see it in the dream, we're like, I don't, I don't know. Kind of weird. Let's see how this concludes, this dream concludes, and then we'll get into some interpretation. Then I heard in verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, I'm, I'm going to pause there. So that's the vision. That's, that's the end of the vision. And I don't know if this is a waking vision or a sleeping vision. I don't know if this is happening um, in those first verses. I don't know if this is happening while he was on a walk and he was near the canal. He suddenly saw a vision. Or if he was sleeping and in his dream, he walked to the canal to see this vision. Like, I don't know what is happening. But Daniel's having this vision of this ram that gets uprooted by a flying goat with one horn, but the one horn becomes four horns, and out of the four horns comes one horn that interrupts the worship of God's people for six years. It says 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's about six years-ish. And then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So if you get that kind of a vision from God, like who, is, who's, who, who would be excited to get that kind of a vision from God? It'd be like, uh, God, like, I really wish that you would speak and, 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 and tell me what's going on in the world. I pray that you would give me some kind of perspective on what's happening or what's going to happen. Like, would you please lead me and guide me? And he gives you this dream about a ram and a flying goat. Would anybody feel like he had answered our prayer? <laughs> Or would we say, like, I, I wish I hadn't asked. Like, <laughs> like I, I am more confused now than I had been when I had no idea what was coming in the future. 
Uh, I personally think that I would be frustrated. Like, I'd be, I'm, what do you mean a goat? A flying goat. Like, I've heard of when pigs fly. One of my favorite books when I was a kid was called Tuesday, and it was about when frogs would fly. Um, anybody know that book? Anybody? No? Okay, sorry. Uh, um, but, like, this is a flying goat. Like, I'd, I'd be more confused than that. So, I want to pause here as we're concluding um, reading the vision and just restate a question that I posed to you last week. Will we seek God's clear word in ambiguous times? We can come to God and say, hey, God, would you give me some insight? Would you, would you help me to know exactly what's coming next? And it may be that if we knew what was coming, we'd be more confused than if we were just faithful to what he had already revealed to us. And I don't know whether Daniel was seeking this out or not, but I know that there's a tendency for me to want to have more from God than what he's given me. And so will we seek God, it's clear word, will we seek God's clear word in ambiguous times? I'm reminded in, in 1 Corinthians, um, it's around chapter 13, actually. It's built around chapter 13. But Paul tells Christians, like, please, desire the higher gifts. And as he describes the higher gifts, he says, these are the ones that have clear proclamation, the ones that are clear. Desire the, the, the gifts that give clear communication about what the gospel is, what God is, and what he's doing in the world. Desire those gifts. And he says, I will show you, even as you desire those better gifts, I will show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way that he gives is the way of love. Though I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. So as we look into um, matter that uh, apparently angels are familiar with, let us remember that our call, our clear call from Scripture is to love one another and to love God most of all. We learned together last week that we lament evil's devastation while we live in the light of God's assured victory. We saw last week in that big global vision that God promises I'm going to win this thing. My victory is assured. And we saw from Daniel's reaction to all of that that we can lament evil's devastation while we live in light of God's assured victory. But this morning as we go on, I'd just like to encourage us that we grieve over evil as a healthy expression of our faith in the Most High God. We grieve over evil as a healthy expression of our faith in the Most High God. And there's a little bit of a nuance to why I've articulated it that way. When we, look at the, when we look at God's assured victory, we say everything's going to turn out in the end, there's a temptation for us not to grieve. There's a temptation for us to gloss over what's wrong and what's broken in the world because we know that everything's going to end up right in the end. And we can walk around trying to stick Band-Aids on people that are really like bleeding out from serious wounds. And I think as we look at Daniel's response to what's going on in this vision and we see how things go on, like the encouragement is that we should grieve over evil and that our grief over evil is not a lack of faith. It's a healthy expression of our faith in the Most High God, even as we live in light of his assured victory. So I've tried to give you where we're going. Let's look together at the interpretation of the vision. It begins in verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Well, we're on the same boat then. 
And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So I'll I'll pause us there. Um, We get an interpretation from an angel again. So Daniel's again going around asking, Hey, let's... Somebody tell me what's going on here. Like I, don't, I don't really get it. And, and, and it seems like God calls, hey, Gabe, uh, can, you, can you help him out? Help the boy out here. Gabriel, make the man understand the vision. And Gabriel, all right, I guess I'll, I guess I'll help you get it. Um, it com- it's talking about the end. It's talking about the end of the indignation. We're talking about something that's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's something that's going to happen uh, years from now. Okay? But when Daniel hears this, he falls asleep. He hears, this is for the end, and he's so overwhelmed that he falls asleep. And I'm not sure if he's dreaming and falls asleep in the dream, or he's awake and having this vision, and then he falls asleep on the ground like a fit of narcolepsy. Um, But he's so overwhelmed to understand that this vision is something that's going to happen in the future that it seems like it breaks him. But the angel touched me and made me stand up. He doesn't even stand up by himself. The angel has to, like, pick him up. He's like, all right, you're going to get this. It's for the end. I need you to understand this is for the end. It's, it's for the appointed time. This is going to happen. Um, again, it says at the beginning there that they're in Susa, in the capital city near the canal. So geographically, we're in the exact same place. Um, and God communicates through angelic servants. Um, and it's the latter end of the indignation. We can, we can be tempted to start to pick apart every single detail of this and try to categorize things and things like that. And I'm not sure that, that I don't know that that's particularly helpful. But the way that the angel talks about what's happening here makes me think that the angels have an understanding of the seasons of what's going to happen in the earth that maybe we don't quite understand. He says the end of the indignation, like we're supposed to know what the indignation is. Um, And maybe the way that we think about the end of time is different from the way that angelic beings think about the end of time. They might have a different perspective than us. I don't know, being outside of a mortal flesh, maybe. So uh, let's read Daniel chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. These are fun. As for the ram, the angel is talking and he's given interpretation of the dream in verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So I'll pause there. This is something that I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, very rarely uh, will God ever tell us exactly what's going on. But here, he's given this dream of these strange uh, rams and goats, and then he says who they are. He says, the ram is Medo-Persia, the kings of Media and Persia, 
Medo-Persia, which have not yet overtaken Babylon. Remember, we're in the third year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the last Babylonian king. So when the handwriting came on the wall, Daniel is remembering this dream and going, oh, like, Belshazzar, that's the end for you. Here come the Medes and the Persians. They're going to be the next kingdom that comes over. So where last week we talked about these two visions. Is that easier to read than it was last week? We talked about these two visions in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7. Um, God had already told us that the head of gold and the lion-like beast was Babylon. Um, but here we see that Medo-Persia and Greece are the next seceding kingdoms. And here we've got a ram representing Medo-Persia and a goat representing Greece with one key leader that seems to move really, really quickly and with four leaders that come up after it, after him. Now, I started a sentence last week that I didn't finish, um, and that was not on purpose, but I wrote in my notes, finish the sentence you started last week. So here is the sentence that I started to tell you about last week that I didn't finish. Critical scholars will look at the book of Daniel and say, this must have been written after the events that it describes. Because at the time that Daniel would have been writing this, Greece wasn't a unified power. There was no kingdom of Greece of like a bunch of things. I, in fact, the innovation that the Greeks like really were famous for at this time was the polis, was the city. The thing that they were good at was making really strong city-states. But the city-states were notoriously independent. They didn't necessarily get along. That's why you've got Athenians who do Athen Athenian things, and then you've got, um, who are the guys from 300? You're going to have to help me out, Josh. The Spartans. You've got Sparta, and you've got Athens, and they are both Greek, but they are independent city-states that don't necessarily collaborate on anything. They're, they're independent from each other. And so at the time that Daniel would have been writing that Greece is this great flying goat, Greece would have been thought of in the minds of the ancients as like, that's a bunch of different random cities that kind of have a, a, a same background, but they, don't, they didn't even get along. What do you mean they're going to work together? That doesn't make any sense. So critical scholars will look at this text and go, this has to have been written after the fact. There's no way that 300 years before Alexander the Great unites the Greek Empire and becomes one of the or becomes the largest empire that had existed on the planet at that time. There's no way that that was written down 300 years before it happened. It must have been written down after the fact to explain what happened. I'm inclined to think that it's a prophecy. I'm inclined to think that what we have described here in that. Alexander the Great flies across, he comes quickly, as a 20-year-old, takes over the known world, unites the Greek-speaking uh, Greek world in three or four years. Something that had never been done in history before is described. Then when he dies, he tries to give the kingdom to his sons, but his sons can't share power. His two sons can't share power. And it ends up his kingdom's divided between his four main generals. And his generals divide up the kingdom into four different kingdoms, and guess what? None of them are as strong as when they were all working together under Alexander. Uh, Alex is a really interesting dude. And history is, is kind of fascinated with him. But there's a little-known fact about Alex that I find particularly interesting. 
um, the first biography that was ever written about the life and times and conquests of Alexander the Great was written 300 years after he died. And, and the records of those texts that we have come from hundreds of years after that. Like, we don't have a copy of the one that was written in the first century, but we have copies of ones that were copied later. And yet, these same critical scholars will look at that and go, yeah, but that's history. But when we look at the New Testament, that was written by people that were either uh, eyewitnesses or people who were interviewing eyewitnesses, within a generation of the events that happened, we go, yeah, but that's got to be some kind of religious mumbo-jumbo. That can't be real. But if we're talking about historical accuracy, who would be more reliable? Somebody that heard about something that happened 300 years ago? Or somebody who's talking to somebody else who saw it happen? And so I understand, looking at the details of this dream and looking at the details of the interpretation, why people who are skeptical of the scriptures would say this had to have been written afterwards. But I'm inclined to think, based upon the reliability of the things that talk about Jesus, uh, and the way that Jesus talks about Daniel, that this was a prophecy written hundreds of years before it happened, so accurate and so detailed that people go, this has to have been after the fact. Uh, let's continue reading this last section here in verse 23. So the four kingdoms are divided, but they don't have his power in verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit... A king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand." We'll pause there. So out of these divided Greek empire, there's, there's a ruler that's going to come up and he's going to destroy a lot of stuff. And particularly, he's going to make war against the saints. So we have a ruler in history. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name's Antiochus. Antiochus IV. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. I don't know how these titles work, but that's his name. And uh, he actually like had a, had a spur in his saddle about the Jewish people. In fact, he decided, like, I'm going to get rid of all these people. <laughs> One of his, his main political campaigns was to destroy the Jewish people. There are, are historical records of a wars and wars that he waged against them. And he knew that the center of, of spiritual life for the Jewish people was their temple. And he knew that their temple was sacred, that it was holy, that Yahweh insisted that only burnt offerings be offered in, in his temple, and that only once a year should anybody go into the high place, the most holy of holies, only one person was authorized to go in once a year to make atonement for people. And Antiochus shows up after he's declared war against Jerusalem, and he decimates people, kills people just for kicks and giggles. He walks into the temple. He offers a pig, which is an unclean animal, on the altar of God to desecrate and make the, the temple unholy. And then he sets up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He's a boastful guy who came out of nowhere, who played political games and worked hard to destroy God's people. 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar with any of that history, um, but it's incredible looking back. But here, here's something that, that's fascinating. This, this, this small line, he, he, he does his life by cunning and deceit, and in his own mind he will become great. Um, without warning he shall destroy many and even shall rise up against the prince of princes. I think he's taking war against God. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So this political guy who's consolidated a bunch of power, who's leading armies, who's at the top of his game, who's brilliant, he's a tactician, he, he thinks critically, he understands riddles, he knows how the world works, he can play the political game. The person who's at the top of his stride, nobody can touch him, but how does he die? He's got bowel issues. Some kind of gastrointestinal bowel thing. And he dies. No matter how much power we accrue, no matter how much political strength we have, no matter how ripped we are when we get out of the CrossFit gym, we all are subject to the same frailness of humanity. And Antiochus was no different. But God measures all of this. He talks about the measure of their transgression hasn't come yet, and, and then when it has come, then I put this guy in place. And then when he's done everything that he's going to do, then I make sure that he comes out. He's not struck by human hand. It's obviously a divine thing. He's broken. All of these things happen at God's direction. Um, will we trust that God sees and hates evil? Will we trust that God sees and hates evil? There's times where we can look at the news and go, does God see anything that's happening? It seems like everything's on fire. Everything's in chaos. Like, doesn't God see what's going on here? Doesn't he care? Will we trust that God sees and he hates evil? It does not bring him pleasure to watch his people suffer. He hates it. He has it measured out, and he brings it to an end. We all actually, I think in our heart of hearts, want God to be a just judge. We don't want bad people to get away with doing bad things, do we? I don't think there's anybody that I say, okay, well, like, if I were to say a serial killer comes to the end of his life and he's on death row and he turns his life over to Jesus and, and God forgives him. There's something about that that we're like, yeah, but shouldn't he pay for his sin? Like, he, he murdered people. I want God to be a just judge. I want him to execute judgment against the people who deserve it. We all want that until we consider his judgment on ourselves and our own hearts, our own hypocrisy. There's a danger in disciplining your children um, <laughs> where the things that you discipline them for, you identify in your own heart. I'm reminded of that in particular ways this week. The wickedness that we so quickly identify in other people and that we want judged in other people, when they're in our heart, we're like, oh God, won't you be gracious? Won't you forgive? Well, we trust that God sees and hates evil whether it's in the world or whether it's active in our own hearts. And if that's true, I just encourage you that we grieve 
over evil. We're broken by it when we see it out in the world or when we see it in ourselves. We grieve evil as a healthy expression of our faith in the Most High God. And as we are grieving that, we bring it to Jesus and say, God, I cannot make myself clean. Would you wash me? And he promises that he will. That as we put our faith in Jesus, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Let's read the conclusion. The angel says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel gets a clear vision of the evil that's going to be unleashed in the world, and it makes him sick. For all the times that I wish I knew what God was doing, I trust that if he hasn't told me yet, um, perhaps I'm better off not knowing. But Daniel's response is, 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 is lament. We lament evil's devastation while we live in light of God's assured victory, but are we still moved by evil's carnage in the world? Are we still moved by evil's carnage in the world? Whether we see it in the world, or whether we see it in the mirror, are we moved by evil's carnage of the world, or have we just kind of grown accustomed to it? We're not sensitive to it anymore. It doesn't move us when we see pain and suffering and evil. How many examples could I give? I don't feel like I need to say any, but imagine there are things coming to mind. Are we still moved by evil's carnage in the world? Um, there's a song that asks, um, we are cowards and we're thieves. Will we never turn to grieve the damage done? Will we never see and never quake with rage at what we have become? To come face to face with the darkness, either in the mirror or in the world, I think should inspire us to action. To grieve over evil is a healthy expression of our faith and to repent and to say, God, I, I don't need this in my heart anymore. Would you wash me clean? I wrote in my notes earlier in the week, we may be overwhelmed in the face of evil, but God has measured its end. Would you pray with me? Yeah, there's a separation that we have um, between the history, between the culture, um, for us to hear about a, a pig, an unclean animal being sacrificed on your altar, um, maybe isn't emotionally moving. God, for these things to have happened in history, for them to have been foretold in great detail, and for Daniel to have to carry that, God, with all of the other burdens that he had to carry. He was faithful to you. He was undefiled. He was diligent in prayer. And you give him this vision of how things are just going to get worse. You give him a promise that your people are going to be persecuted and destroyed. 
And there's a part of me that wonders, God, I thought you were, you were kind. Why would you do this to your servant? And Lord, I, I'm not in a place to question you, though I don't understand. But would you move my heart to grieve over the evil that has occurred, that is occurring, that will continue to occur? You do not hide the fact that the world is broken. And that you give us the light of hope through your Son that all things might be made right again. To whom else will we turn, Jesus? We turn to you and we trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We'll take a few minutes and reflect on how God's speaking this morning. Uh, If there's something you need to do, something you need to write down, something you need to text, um, then this is space for that. Just spend some time in prayer, and uh, we'll close together in singing.